Susan, what matters to you? Reality, which means that which is sacred, not with words and not concepts, but the direct experience of it. Wow. Yes. You, you've considered that one. <laughs> no, you asked. I didn't have to think about it. Yeah. Why, why is that important to you? That's where the whole path leads. Mm. That, that's what it, and not everyone calls it reality. There are many other words. Mm. Pure awareness, Christ consciousness, the eternal, Satchit, Swami Satchitananda, I forgot the term, but it's something similar. Lots of words, and the words are wonderful. Mm. And in Buddhism, some people call it Buddha nature. All is well, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I heard something that had a profound impact on me. And it was that truth is like a magnetic force pulling us toward it. Do you find that to be true? Oh, absolutely. In fact, that is another way of saying what matters. Truth with a capital T. Mm. And it can become many, many, many different things. Yes. And I think you could say it, that saying that you just quoted, like a magnetic force. It's something deep in our hearts. We yearn for it. Mm. Even when we're not aware, our mind wants to deny it. The heart yearns. So the heart knows something beyond what the mind wishes often, usually, to acknowledge. Hmm. How does the mind get, get in the way? So I'll first start with what the brain does. Or, and I'm going to be speaking from the context of a Buddhist understanding, but I think it's got scientific basics wound into it and that is a we see the world and our conventional life conventionally in terms of forms we see a you a me and therefore once there's a me there's all these yous around and all these others and all these forms we see these forms and that form impinges on our sense organs with sight sound smell touch whatever the brain makes associations based on its memories, and everybody's got a different set of memories, uh, slightly different and often very different, depending on culture, time, and so forth. And then it attributes meaning to these various objects. And once there's meaning, we put together, the brain puts together a worldview based on the meanings. So we each go around with our different worldviews. And fortunately, there's enough overlap. But basically, there are billions of worldviews, and they're always changing. Why? Because farms are always changing. Re external, farm-based reality is always changing. Uh, as one teacher, a Zen teacher, Sherry Huber, once said, it's as though we are living on roller skates in a room full of ball bearings. Everything is always doing that. So we've got our worldviews. They're always changing. Everything's always changing. And the mind wants, stays in the central position because it's always interpreting for us. And there's another word for mind in this sense. In addition to the brain emitting electrical impulses, there's the ego, that which we identify with. We first identify with the self, and therefore we're identifying myself, and then there's everything else, and that's what my brain tells me. The mind or the ego doesn't want to be outshone, doesn't want to be off center stage, knocked off of center stage. If, in fact or when, 
we come to a direct experience, not intellectual, but direct experience of what you just called truth with a capital T, are there any of the other words we can use for it, cosmic consciousness or whatever, once that's directly realized, there's no central role. We recognize our, our identity shifts. We recognize that that who I thought I was, it's much more than that. The sense of identity with, my, with an I, that's not what it is about. Our understanding shifts critically. When we are form-based in our experience of reality, tell me if all this sounds too abstract. No, no. If we're form-based, when we're form-based in our experience of reality, an ego is in the center, and that means the mind is operating and directing things. And usually we are directed by and agree with, without thinking, just our opinions, our habits, what our mind has told us is true. Say, okay, that's true, and we haven't thought about it. Once we actually experience what the heart deeply yearns for, there's a huge shift that goes on. And that shift, is it possible that the ego and the heart can become teammates? Can become what? Teammates. Absolutely. And, um, but that shift needs to be made before they become teammates. And mm. the, and I'll just simply say that the heart view, and that is the farmless view the view of truth with a capital T that is boundless and spaceless. Once it's directly experienced, then it can be brought back into daily life and inform how we live in daily life. And that's when the mind becomes a functional as a servant, mm. but not the master. Mm. See, it is the master in our conventional world. Right. It seems to me that the mind or the ego uh, is also layered, has layers. So, you know, in layers of desire, perhaps. So on, on a very surface level, perhaps, you know, the, the ego seems to be something that, you know, wants to compete against others and, and is, uh, you know, self-conscious, unsure of itself um, and caught there. But is there a deeper layer to the mind and the ego that actually wants to lose itself and listen to the heart? And that's the deeper desire of the ego or the mind? Um, you are, first of all, I'm not a psychologist, and, and you are explaining it in a way that makes common sense to me. We do, we have multiple desires. We are so complicated uh, as human beings. Isn't that wonderful? What all of the capabilities and potential of our mind. And I'll say, yes, you know, like people who come here to Yogaville, they're searching for something. Now, often, and it's the degree or the depth to which they think they, they're searching ostensibly, but there is the deeper depth, I think, that you're the heart, where the heart yearns, and we may not, the mind not even, may not even recognize it. But yes, there is the yearning. The mind will say, yes, that sounds so good. And then it's like, uh-oh, once something really begins to challenge a critical view we've got, mm. it's hard. Mm. And this is where practice comes in. And this mm. is what right now we're, mindfulness practice will come in because it gives us tools how to recognize this how to work with that with great kindness loving kindness to the mind you know the mind isn't the enemy and we can work with but we often take it as such we're often intimidated by it or the mind tells us we're no good and we believe it or the variety of things the mind does but yes they definitely can be teammates and i think this is what all the sages know mm. not only know 
It's what they embody. Hmm. Okay, so I'll just say one more thing. For example, in Zen Buddhism, um, there's some really famous, they call them 10 ox herding pictures. It's something that I guess from time immemorial that people in Zen trained with, and there were little images of a, a, a man with an ox. And at first the ox is all over the place. And the man's trying to capture the ox and it goes into 10 stages. I don't remember exactly what the 10 stages are, but this is how we work. It's a, a pictorial image is how we work with the mind in training as practice. And as the pictures get go down the line and mature, evolve, eventually from this very busy mind and the man struggling with it, a very busy ox, the man struggling with it, eventually there's quiet. And that doesn't, the quiet doesn't mean there are no thoughts. Let me just say that. The quiet comes from a different, deeper, other source. And then there's the last picture. And the last picture is the man riding the ox back into town. Mm. And that's where they go together. Yeah, yeah so you, you mentioned having tools. Uh, kind of tools that can be helpful in this experience that we call life. Um, so is there a tool that acknowledges this experience of jumping between kind of states of being and levels? Um, you talk about, you know, going back to town or going away from town, right? Uh, or a, a place of, you know, maybe more fear, fear-based to a place of, of relaxation. And is it inevitable to jump between states of being more than we can even define? And is the practice in a way accepting this process that there's always going to be this movement between different planes? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'll say more. So first of all, let me say that that last picture, because I think I heard when I picked up from you that maybe I didn't make it clear, that last picture of riding the ox back into town means that place where the, the what we know in the heart, truth, the wordless truth that every sage and great mystic has known, is known, and then taking it back into daily life, that's going back into town. That's where the, the, team, may, the team happens. Now, when you say different levels, are you referring to what you referred to before when you talked about the ego or it seems to have different levels? Is that what you mean? Yeah. I'll say that, uh, and now I speak from the Buddhist perspective and the training that I've had, the complexities of our mind, the various levels are absolutely, we are always, and, and I'll say the mind, and consequently the emotions are always jumping around with with great regularity, you know, they have, science has um, told us how many thoughts we have a day. I mean, and they're coming from all over the places. They're, we are not, we are not rational beings. Mm. We're all over the place. And we can, that's natural to the human brain. And if ever, as we do in this tradition, stop and we simply do what we call open awareness. And that is just sit with no deliberate thought, and watch, scan consciousness, and allow the parade of phenomena to appear to the mind, it's totally chaotic. When we don't try to, you know, usually we're in there, we are censoring somehow, 
you know, I'm, I need to work on this or else we're not even doing that, but our mind is going off and going down the stream about what we're having for dinner or our vacation or whatever. But when we don't, when we just sit there, it, it, there's a sound and there's a thought or a wisp of a thought and then there's a, an, a wisp of emotion or a big emotion. We keep, but what the practice is, is you keep catching and noticing when you get caught, come back to open awareness. But that shows you clearly, utterly, the chaos that goes on here. That's not bad. That's not bad. It's just noticing what's true about the mind and the answer so to your question is, yeah, we are complicated. And to be driven by these things unconsciously, which is usually what is happening, is suffering. It's real suffering. So I take like meditation, for yeah. example, um, and you know, maybe there's a goal when you go into meditation to find, you know, stillness and, and not have thoughts perhaps. And then all of a sudden you, you found that you're deep in thoughts and imagining whatever it is, daydreaming, whatnot. Uh, and maybe you don't even catch yourself. You're just in it. And so you're meditating for a half an hour and for, you know, 15 minutes out of that half an hour, you're fantasizing about whatever it is that you're doing. Is there a moment in there where the mind does catch itself in what it's doing? But maybe there's a choice there. Is there a choice that oh, I'm too far gone? I've, I've lost my goal of almost like, you know, feeling badly about the self. Look, I had this goal that I wanted to do. I wanted to be still. I wanted to meditate. I just haven't been meditating for the past 10 or, 10 or 15 minutes. So right there at that moment, seems that there's a choice to make. And sometimes the choice can be, no, I'm just gonna keep going and imagining whatever. I'm not even gonna acknowledge the fact that I can come back to that stillness. Or you can say, oh, there's no problem with all of that. There's no problem with fantasizing and imagining and I you know, even lost time or there's no such thing as losing time, but now I can drop it. And that, okay, I can just let that go and, and come back. Okay, so there are a lot of things to say, and the way you have formulated it, uh, I won't go, I'm going to respond. First of all, I'll say that when, and I'm talking from the Buddhist perspective, uh, and particularly, well, from the Buddhist perspective, there are a couple of different kinds of meditation. One is mindfulness, which is basically what I'm talking about, but there's another kind, and it's called um, the meditative absorptions. And when you say different states of being, there's well understood in certain schools of Buddhism that we can train in cultivating non-ordinary states of consciousness. And that means states of bliss. And there are teachers who, it's been taught since ancient times, and there are teachers these days who do it. So these can be cultivated and there are those who are masters of which I am not, but you can definitely cultivate so that you would reach bliss or equanimity or such incredible happiness that is not dependent on circumstances. You have allowed, trained the mind to do that, and it is natural. We have that capability. So that's one thing. Mindfulness is another kind of meditation. Mindfulness is about recognizing Well, I'll start with what the Buddha talked about. And I'm going to add to it, actually. The Buddha spoke about suffering as a first, what he called first noble truth. If, in fact, 
we recognize, and many people are pushed to a spiritual inquiry because they are suffering mm. so deeply, and I know that see that all the time. When our mind does go down the line and we're caught for a half an hour, yes, there is a choice point if we're caught in thoughts. And sure, we have the ability to say, ah, I'm too far gone. In mindfulness, the whole point is to recognize it's never about being too far gone. You can, depends, your, your choice is gonna be your choice. But recognize particularly people have incentive if they are suffering so much that they wanna change their behavior. You see, we are driven by habitual thought patterns and about by habitual ways that we've always done things. Mindfulness means that we cultivate a shift. And just because we've always let the mind run on, which it has done and it has taken us into all the kinds of suffering that we experience, we realize something needs to change. So we have incentive when we catch the mind and we try in mindfulness practice to catch it as soon as possible. That doesn't mean we always do or even that we will always want to. You know, we can always let it go on. But we realize the cost of living in the fantasy world. There's a cost. Why? What's the cost? Is that you're not living with reality. Life is so precious. So when we are out somewhere, usually we do it as a uh, way of avoiding a lot, something that's so painful, we just don't want to look at it. So you know, fantasy becomes better. Are there times when we're just so physically tired? Why not? We go listen or watch or do something, watch on the internet or whatever. You know, okay. But as a way of life, from the mindfulness point of view, not okay. It's not okay because it takes you away from what's really real and it continues to keep you up to your eyeballs in suffering. Does that make sense why it keeps you? The mind is unreliable, let's put it that way. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about this too, like the mind being unreliable or you mentioned, you know, that we are not rational beings, right? Or, you know, we can never know really truth with a capital T or be completely objective. So is by acknowledging that we can never attain that, like pure objectivity, pure truth, does that actually allow us to move closer toward like by saying, okay, I can never be completely ra rational. Uh, part of this human experience is having bias that my lenses are, are colored. But by acknowledging that, does that allow them to be less colored? Okay, so we have two different understandings right here going on between us as to what truth is with a capital T. It is not, quote unquote, objective truth. That's form-based truth. No problem, and I know that science has said that, that the uh, um, person who's doing the experiment in uh, quantum physics, that the person doing the experiment in, interferes with, quote unquote, objective truth. There's something else that completely coincides with that, and that is objective truth isn't form-based. It's not a matter of getting all the facts together. Truth with a capital T isn't about form. And this is what the mind cannot and does not ultimately really welcome. And that is what the heart yearns for. And that truth is something that can't, although we talk about it, people have talked about it forever and tried to, words only point to it. And it can only be experienced it's an expansion of consciousness. And it isn't something that can be put into words, although we do, everybody, those who do it, do it all the time. But 
recognizing the, the words aren't it. But I'm pointing out that you have just said that we can, recognizing that we can never um, achieve objective truth. That's not what we're after. That, that, it's a whole different thing. And that is part of the misconception that we're going after objective truth all the time. The problem with objective truth is there's always a sense of a self involved. And when there's a sense of a self, there's separation. It's not only makes for suffering and uh, a sense of alienation, but it makes for un, uh, something that is not the whole story about what reality is. Reality is something much more than that, much other than that, and much I don't even want to say bigger because that puts a comparison on it. It's just other. And that's what the heart knows or can can know. That's what mystics throughout the ages have discovered. That's, that's it. So it's not objective truth. And it's that everything comes from that which is without form and time, that which is infinite. And you can call it God or whatever. That's it. And everything comes from that. That's not a belief. That is experienced directly in, in that direct experience as a recognition. Hey, I'm not, the self isn't there. The self is just an expression of it. And it's not understandable for the mind. You know, we hear the words, but the mind doesn't get it. Yes. Um, and I've heard you mention uh, that everything has an individuality to itself, but is also connected to the whole. That there is, is the whole. Is the whole. Yes. Is the whole. Thank you. Can you elaborate on that? How do we kind of um, navigate those waters between feeling, okay, there's an individuality to myself. I have more of a direct experience and, you know, my body, I choose where to move, move my body. And also I am a part of everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love the, the Hindu word, Leela mm -hmm. cosmic play. The whole thing is cosmic play. That is seeing it from this point of view of truth with a capital T or formlessness or whatever you want to God, whatever. And then here are all these individual forms. We're a form. You're a form. I'm a form. We're, we're all form. Multiplicity. And why is it like that? Who knows? I mean, it just is like that. And yeah, there is multiplicity. And we do experience ourselves as individuals. But when we're on, I'm going to go back to this oxygen deal, when we're back on the oxygen, if we have reached that wonderful, it, no, I'm going to say even before the 10th stage, because I haven't reached that 10th stage, but I do know what it means of there are times for some people it's abiding, it's always, but even before you get to that always, always stage, you know, there is a living through the self as an individual, and there is the knowledge simultaneously of that which is cosmic. Both. That you ask as the team, can they work yeah. as a team? You don't have to get to the 10th stage. He or she who is at the 10th stage, presumably, is there always and undeviatingly. But even before that, there's the experience of it. Comes and goes, but it's there, you know it. And nothing can take it from you. There's no talk, no, nothing anybody can say can extract that once it's known. Mm. 
And how does that relate to the practice of, of mindfulness, being present in the present without judgment? Beautiful, a beautiful question. Mindfulness is a doorway to that, but it's a foundation. I mean, it helps us train our mind to be present because we're anything but present in the present moment. Our body is one place and our mind is a thousand other places at the same time, always getting distracted. What we're teaching ourselves with great kindness and great flexibility, the mind is going to be jumping around. And what we're doing is we're beginning to bring it back as they, you know, just, okay, sweetheart, come on back, come back now. Doing that enough. Mindfulness meditation is also called insight meditation. Insight is a direct experience of truth directly, not intellectually, not because somebody's told you that, not because you memorize it, but you directly, oh, oh, I hadn't realized it that way before. And I think we, maybe all of us have experienced it. Now, two kinds of insights. One is a personal insight where we see something more about ourselves and I didn't realize I did that all the time or I didn't realize this or that about myself. So it's a personal insight and that's beautiful. And it helps us grow and evolve and widen our consciousness. Our, our, our consciousness expands. But there are also universal insights. Insights about universal truth. We don't control any of it. It comes to us as a result of this particular kind of mindfulness. And I'm, I'm, I'm not excluding other kinds of, of meditation now. Because I think as soon as we get quiet enough, it begins to come, but that's going to tie into something else you said a moment ago about trying to quiet the mind. In mindfulness meditation, we're not trying to quiet the mind. In that concentration meditation, the uh, meditative absorptions I talked about a little while ago, that's part of it. But in mindfulness, there's only a, an extent where we have to be disciplined. But beyond that, we are trying to be aware of the mind. It's really, in a sense, very applicable to daily life because when we live our daily life, we are bombarded by all kinds of circumstances. We have been training ourselves in our meditation to become more aware, and that's including the mind that goes yak, 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 and everything else that's bombarding us, sounds and smells and whatever. And if we can do it in our meditation, then we can do it more in daily life. I don't know if that answered your question because I kind of got away from it. Yeah, I think so. I want to um, uh, go back to the point of the, the judgment, of, oh. of non, non-judgmental, because I think that that is, can feel overwhelming, right? How can I be in this world without judging? It seems like there's a part of our being that just wants to judge. I have, I have preferences, I have likes, I have dislikes. Right. How do we move to a place you know, without yeah, judgment. We, you know, I'm here right now teaching a course, mm-hmm. and this is what we were talking about this morning. Exactly. I mean, it's like you were sitting in, in the course asking this question. Um, the mind is going to judge. The question is, do we believe our judgments? Mm-hmm. That's the difference. What do we believe? To be able to see that, okay, the mind likes this, that, or the other. The problem is, no, when we believe it and we get totally caught with it, and act on it. And one ex- little example, I just used it this morning, and it's used widely in, in mindfulness courses. If you're walking down the street, you see somebody on the other side of the street, an acquaintance, and you wave hi to them, and they walk right on and they don't acknowledge you. What's your response? So people come up with a different response, like, forget them, I'm not gonna talk to them again. Or, 
what did I do wrong? All of that. Or, you know, maybe they didn't see me. You know, it's a variety. But the point is, is that often we will, our subsequent responses to this other person are begeared by what our judgment has been. In mindfulness, we begin, and we were just talking about this this morning, to train ourselves, but to recognize the difference between believing a judgment and that recognition is called discernment. Mind will judge. You can't stop it. That's just being human. But are you going to be automatically believe it? That's being aware, not being asleep. Mm. Asleep in terms of consciousness. Right. Getting caught, or I think uh, opinions. You're taking. It seems that it's a it's a cultural epidemic almost to take our opinions so seriously. So as you said, maybe it's similar to judgment. Is that we're going to have opinions, you know? But how seriously do we take them? Can we do it with this? Can we go through life just with this lightness? Oh, okay, this is my opinion. Maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. Yes, we can. That, and that's a beautiful. That's is a beautiful and useful way of doing it. But more deeply is the recognition with what regard to whatever opinion we hold. Is this one that is true, or is this just what my mind has? Uh, put up as truth on the basis of perception and its associated memories and uh, with it and therefore I believed it and I'm going to continue to believe it we have the choice we recognize we have the choice on any given opinion to believe and attach identify and act on the basis of or to pull back and say wait a minute that's not true I'm just doing that on the basis of because somebody, I see a Doberman Pinscher and I was bit by a Doberman Pinscher, so I'm always afraid whenever I see one. There's no reality in that. Mm. That's conditioned response. As we expand awareness, we become more and more aware of what our conditioning has been, is, not has been, is. Mm. And we have the wonderful capability as human beings, by noticing, by shining the light of attention on it, we weaken it. And enough times that the light of attention has been shown on a particular conditioning, the weaker it gets. Whether it's always going to, can, whether it will completely disappear or not, I don't know. Uh, depends, I guess. Person, the opinion, whatever it is. But it is certainly weakened. This is a movement in the degree in the air toward freedom. Mm. Otherwise, we're caught. I used to teach at prisons, um, and I told them that I said, "You, all, you all are." behind bars literally, when I was teaching mindfulness, behind bars literally, I said, but the people who are out in the street, they're also behind bars. It's mm -hmm. the bars of the mind. Mm -hmm. And part of the problem with the bars of the mind is we don't recognize that they're bars. Mm -hmm. You've got to even realize that they're bars or the box of the mind to be able to get out of the box. And that's what mindfulness does. Do you think that there's a part of this human experience that's universal, that we all have a similar uh, desire to grow, to improve, whatever that, that means, to progress as a person. I, I agree with, I, yes, I do. I, I think in some people who have been so damaged, maybe that desire has been really almost squelched, but I think, yeah, we do. And I think across, cultures across time there's a great there's all these commonalities as human beings and 
there is a wisdom. And who was it? They called it the perennial wisdom, the heart of most of the great, let's say, religious traditions. Uh, James, maybe it was James who, who thought so, said that. The perennial wisdom. All we have to do is start looking at these various religions and know that they speak in different terms because they're talking in different cultures or at different times about the same thing in different ways of just saying it. And certainly Swami Satchidananda seemed to and seemed to recognize that and say that. But I don't want to quote him because you all know better than I do. Yeah, no, a follow-up question is, you know, is, is the maybe one of the um, foremost obstacles not realizing how much better it can be. So instead, kind of just being caught in the comfortable, right? The, the comfortable, the habitual, okay, the, I know what this is like, I know what it is to, you know, have the mind dominate like this, to not have a meditation practice, to not be mindful. Um, and so that the path of creating a new practice, of, of, of seeing that it can be better endlessly, that we can always improve, that there isn't a plateau, that the spiritual journey is about never-ending progression and learning. Uh, I agree about, I certainly, and not that I'm a judge of anything, but I've never found an end, but I love in the, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, there is a mantra called the Prajnaparamita mantra, and at the very end of it, it says, Oh Buddha, and I'm using the translation of Shasta Abbey, which is a Buddhist abbey up in Mount Shasta, California, but it's, Oh Buddha, going, 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 always going on, always becoming Buddha, hail, hail, hail. So that point is, it never stops as long as we are alive. We're always going on, yes expanding and where are we going on to even freedom it is and mm -hmm. I, I could say toward freedom there are those who have already experienced freedom but there is a going on even after the experience the Tibetan Buddhists talk about don't mistake understanding for realization and don't mistake realization for liberation. And even after realization, this idea of liberation, of being that is liberated, which I certainly am not going to claim to be, I am not, but it seems to go on and on and on. And that's what I understand. Maybe the difference in being liberated is whether or not you believe that you are. Oh, it's so deep. I mean, this... That's understanding of the understand when we first start, what do I believe? What am I identified with? And the realization part, the R in that, is when you know for sure. I don't I'm not in I'm not part of it. There is no I in the sense that my sense of self tells me there is. There is no I in that sense, and there is an I at the same time, and go figure. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you, but, but you use a good term. Can they be, work this team? The fact that there is no I and there is an I. In Zen Buddhism, they say not two, not one. No I, or the I and the non-I, or truth, are two different things, but they're not two different things. So 
the mind, rational mind can't get it. Right. But truth is it anyway. <laughs> truth, it feels to me, is what you referred to before about the Leela, the, the, the cosmic play, the play that this, it seems that the universe doesn't want me to take this experience so seriously. It seems that it wants me to have fun with it. So I go between the I and the not I and all these different things, and it's, it's just a fun play. Yeah, but that cosmic play seen from another perspective, and that is seen from the perspective with truth with the capital T. You don't even, it's not about you. It's not about you having fun in, uh, although we do. So it, both at the same time. Yeah, so you, I, I understand you expressed it right on one way, what I understand is correctly in one way, and there's another way of seeing it also, where, mm, it's because you said, it seems that the universe doesn't want me, or, d or does want me to have fun. There's, n there's an understanding that there's no me at the same time to, see, to have fun. Sure. Well, the fun even, how, how are we defining the fun? Exactly. You know, I mean, the, there could be even a fun in the losing the me, I would say, that there, that there is, or, or in a not understanding, you know, it's right. re it's releasing to that. That's okay. That, that's fun to not understand, to open up to the limitations of what it means to be a human being. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to ask you about compassion. Um, and just both having compassion for others and for the self on this journey and what what compassion can do for us. Okay, so first I'll say, come to this course this afternoon because that's what we're gonna be talking <laughs> about. <laughs> but uh, I would say from the Buddhist point of view, um, the heart practices, and they are practices, not just qualities, but they are qualities to be cultivated through practice. And the heart qualities include kindness, loving kindness to all, as the sun shines, and I'm using such a trite thing, as the sun shines on all, this is the uh, what, what loving kindness is. Same with compassion. Loving kindness is a tender regard for all things. Compassion is a tender regard for things that are suffering. So what can it do for us? First of all, the way we, understand, we teach it is when you have suffered in your own life and you are working with wisdom with your suffering, not just like a beast of burden kind of crumbling under it, but really with some awareness and trying to work with it and see what it means because it can lead you on on the spiritual path. When you do that, automatically there is a great sense of compassion for yourself instead as opposed to self-blame, which we are so good at in our culture, the sense of guilt and inadequacy and all that. No, we bring great compassion to this whole thing, recognizing we're just human beings, we're never perfect, we're not going to succeed, whatever that might be all the time, we're gonna make mistakes. When we do that, then we can have compassion for ourselves. We do have compassion for ourselves and it automatically is created for other people as well. Other people, beings as well. Hmm. Like, Compassion for a leaf on a tree. How many times do we see people walking down? You've seen you know, people walking down, maybe pull a leaf off a tree and talk to someone else and be tearing it up. You didn't do that. Mm. Why? That leaf has a life. You know, it, it can get down to that kind of level. Right. And then also have compassion for ourselves as we witness ourselves 
tearing the leaf and say, oh, okay, that's all right. And that kind of compassion involves a mindful attention, noticing, whoops, I've just, without thinking, have torn that leaf and I've started tearing it. No mindfulness, unconsciousness, unaware. Mm. Become conscious. I don't tear a second leaf. I'd like to ask you about priority. So I think in the spiritual world, there's many different tools that we have. Um, A whole huge basket full. So using compassion as the example, right? Sometimes we, we acknowledge it. We even see the benefits of a life more of compassion. But is there... Is there's this conscious, can there be this conscious, conscious practice of choosing what we are prioritizing? And is that also happening, happening unconsciously? Um, and, and therefore, you know, when we have an insight, let's say into compassion, so you can have that insight and it could sit right there, but is, is the next step maybe, um, to take that and, and place it higher up on our list of priority? Um, and, and how important is that, what we tr- choose to prioritize um, and taking time to reflect and say, okay, these are my top priorities. Mm-hmm. I don't want to lose my compassion you know, through my life. That's mm-hmm. you know, right at the top for me. Okay, so I think, first of all, it seems that it needs to be looked at from a broader perspective to begin with, and that is you know, we as human beings are so diverse and have such different, let's say, personalities or orientations all these wonderful spiritual, great spiritual paths, draws, different ones draw different people. All is well. Each one has its own form. And I really love the Hindu formulation that talks about bhakti and bhakti yoga, karma yoga, jnana yoga, and raja yoga. I think those are the four. Different people drawn to different things. Depends on what you're drawn to, what's going to be given priority. Are you going to be a devotional person? Maybe that's your priority then. Great. It, it, you know, it's, it's what your path you are on. So I think it's not just... And of course, and then at different times in our lives, especially as you go and you're into it for years, you focus on different, and I'll call them practices at different times. You know, there may be year, a few years when you're working with compassion intensively in addition to everything else. And another few other years, maybe it's service or... I know here at uh, Yoville, I think service is enormously important. That's very beautiful. Yeah. And does that seem to respond to what you're asking or saying? Yeah. And uh, just a question of the power in reflecting on what your habits are and what your current practices are, because um, I feel that maybe, you know, our past intentions and habits of many of us were caught in promises we made to ourselves, you know, 20 years ago or something. And if we don't stop and reassess and say, okay, that served me then, but here's, I want to replace it with something, something fresh. Yeah. And this is again, all that part of being aware, all that part of making choices and not simply going on automatic with our conditioned behaviors, even good conditioned beliefs. It served you, as you said, then, you know, when I was 20 years ago. And right now, it's not it. And I think also with regard to this question, though, 
if you're working with a teacher, your teacher will have, or in a particular lineage, that will also have an influence on where you're going to direct your attention. Got it. I heard you tell a, a Zen story about a, a man who was getting ready to climb a mountain. And as he was getting ready, there was an older man coming down the mountain. And he thought to himself, uh, does this older man, this older man is coming down. So he probably, he's experienced the top of the mountain already. So he probably has some wisdom to share with me. And then he asked the older man what, if he had any wisdom or advice to give. And the older man was carrying a, a, a bag, a sack, and he laid it down um, and then picked it back up. And that was basically the message that he took um, to lay it down and pick it back up um, and to go to the mountaintop and then come back home. So how I interpreted that was perhaps when we go deep into meditation, for example, there seems to be a fear there, I think, maybe, to let go of, of the mind, of the stories, of the self, and go deep, go to that, that mountain. Um, almost as if we'll never be the same again, and that's scary. If I, if I lay this, this, this sack down, then that's, I don't know what's going to happen. Then that's, that's scary to me. Do you have anything to say about that? The process of kind of going, going deep and then coming back to this world. Yeah. I, I, I think this is a different formulation of like the 10 oxidine pictures, mm. yeah. picking up the sack again. And that is going back into the world, into worldly life, but this time totally different. And yes, it's not only scary, it's terrifying to do that because it means letting go of that which we believe ourselves to be. And most essentially what we believe ourselves is to be is ourself. Was, oh my gosh, what does that mean? The idea, it feels like a death and it is, but it is wonderful. And that if there's nothing that can convince someone who hasn't done it or experienced that to really believe it, uh-uh. The mind is running for its life and it's true. And it's so much more complex than I can put into words because it's not all of a sudden the ego lays, lays down and dies. Maybe that happens for a few rare individuals, like I think Ramana Maharshi, I understand. But for most of us, it's a much longer process. But by golly, you sure, sure see the trajectory. It's clear. And yes, yeah, so it is scary. And I think that wonderful story, which I had forgotten, uh, is... Yeah, it says that same thing. You go to the top, and it takes huge courage to get to the top. To go, to lay the sack down takes the courage. Maybe it takes more courage to lay the sack down than to actually get up to the top. I don't know. But it takes just to lay it down and say, okay, I'm going for it. That's huge. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is writing. Because I know you've written a, a few books, so is there anything you can share just about the practice of, of writing and and what writing gives oh, writing. to you? Oh, writing! I thought that you said what writing else. gives to you personally. Oh, hmm. 
Well, I have written do some books, and I will say it was totally surprising. The last I, I wrote a trilogy of historical Buddhist novels, and it was totally surprising. It, this is gonna not quite answer your question. It, I hadn't intended, I didn't even know I was gonna be doing that until the night it hit me that I, I was in a retreat that I needed to do that and I rejected that idea because I didn't wanna do it. It meant a heck of a lot of work to research and all kinds of things I didn't wanna do but I ended up doing it because it was something else I was hearing. It came to me in a way that just said, do it. And I will say that the process of writing was truly wonderful. I mean, hard work. And, you know, I told friends if I were to do that for another 20 years, I might get good at it. You know? <laughs> but it's so beautiful because the characters, and now I'm talking about fiction, these are fiction, these three, they speak to you. I don't mean obviously, I mean, but they, they flow through and they express. So it's just a wonder. And the beauty of words and using them, using them well. The art of that is so beautiful. So there are those people who love it and those for whom it's like, eh, you know, so, but that's been my experience. And where does that fit in the spiritual path? I don't know. It's hmm. Well, you mentioned it being both hard work and loving it at the same time, which could seem almost, you know, opposites from each other. Um, maybe not, yeah, but, 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 but I'm very interested in that is like, you know, maybe redefining, um, work or what we consider to be hard work or things that we have to do. Okay. I've set an intention to, to do this, to write a book or take on another project or whatever it is. Um, you know, is there, is there a, a, a process for kind of softening and transitioning it into a, a joy of a, a love? Yeah. I, you know, obviously I can't talk for Everyone, I'm going to just say that my experience in this, I was carried through the whole way by this knowing that this is what was there for me to do. And don't ask me why, because I have not figured it out either. But that carry, it carried me, and it is hard work. And I don't see them as, as contradictory. Now, sometimes you can write a book and you don't want to write it or it's a, a chore or whatever it is. And then it's just hard work from beginning to end. I can see hard work from beginning, a drudge. Mm. No, this wasn't drudgery. Got it. Yeah. Okay, final question. <laughs> How would you like to improve? Huh. I don't even use the word for, for improve. To me, it's not improvement. That's a... Progress, grow. The, the, okay. I would like to, I was going to say, be able to speak from that place where there is every moment awareness that there's no I there. Hmm. There's that knowledge, there's that knowing, direct experience, but and sometimes it catches me. Thank you so much. Okay. I'm Shanti. I'm Shanti.